for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. This is a message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. If you are at higher risk, you should stay home as much as possible and avoid close contact with people who are sick to protect yourself. Call your doctor if you have concerns about COVID-19 and your medical condition or if you get sick. For more information, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to be talking with uh, an award-winning journalist and uh, author of a new book called Standoff, Race, Policing, and a Deadly Assault that Gripped a Nation, which is uh, a minute-by-minute retelling of the events of July 7th, 2016, um, during which uh, five, I believe, five uh, police officers were killed and 11 others wounded. Um, The book, uh, as I mentioned, is called Standoff, and the uh, journalist-turned-author is Jamie Thompson, who joins me now by phone. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. Um, You covered this event for uh, the Washington Post and the Dallas Morning News. Um, What was it about this event that made you think it was uh, book-worthy, we'll say? So um, in covering the event, I started out as kind of a breaking news reporter writing about the event the morning after where, as you mentioned, five police officers were shot and killed in Dallas. And I kept reporting on the event as the months followed. And I found as, as I got to know many of the people involved, it's just a very rich story that takes you inside um, some of the trauma been grappling with as a nation about race and policing. So this event um, featured a black crisis negotiator who spent four hours on a narrow hallway talking to a guy who had killed the five cops. Um, it also goes pretty deeply into other people who were impacted that night, one of whom was a 
black mother of four who had brought her sons downtown to the protest because she wanted them to sort of participate in this very American form of, of raising your voice to um, make yourself heard. Uh, another of the main characters was a trauma surgeon in the hospital that night that tried um, to save several of the mortally wounded officers that came in. Yeah, Brian so I think Williams. When you, yes, Dr. Brian Williams, correct. And when you really put their stories together, I think it gives you a very rich, um, nuanced perspective on, on these issues we've all been, been grappling with. And can we go back and, and just get um, sort of a synopsis or, or context of the event itself? Absolutely. So this event was in July 2016. It had been a very uh, chaotic week. On Tuesday, police shot and killed Alton Sterling um, in Baton Rouge. On Wednesday, a police officer killed Philando Castile uh, in Minnesota. And on Thursday of that week, hundreds of thousands uh, of people gathered in cities across the country to march. Both of those police killings were captured on video, were widely viewed and watched, and were very disturbing and upsetting to many people who took to the streets. Um, A protest unfolded very peacefully in Dallas. Toward the end of the protest, a young man showed up uh, in a black SUV downtown very heavily armed and got out of his car and started um, shooting police officers, had, had come specifically to target officers because he was upset about the police shooting videos uh, that he had watched. And um, so that's sort of the larger context of what happens. Uh, uh, it was a, just another flashpoint moment in this uh, continuing um, crisis the country's been been dealing with. How does this... Um, this story is sort of the, uh, um, I don't know, opposite of, of what we see in, uh, in the news, like the killing of George Floyd, the Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, some of these more recent events. And the narrative is all about uh, police officers shooting usually um, young black men, um, although mm-hmm. we've seen that that this kind of uh, uh, event is uh, not limited to that. Um, but this is a, a very different uh, story that, that paints police in a different light. Well, I think it attempts to really take you inside um, the officer's perspective. You know, they do a very dangerous job. I think we're all aware of that. And on this night in particular, um, you know, a gunman came at them with a high-powered assault rifle. They had watched their friends and colleagues gunned down in the street, and and they were asked to to follow after this man and corner him in a community college and um, try to end this incident that had essentially shut down Dallas. Um, So it really tries to take you inside their world and some of the... Um, situations they are faced with that we ask them to handle. Uh, it was also a controversial um, incident because of the way that it ended. The the police officers essentially felt as if they didn't have any really good way at stopping this gunman, so they 
loaded robot with C4 and drove it down the hallway toward the gunman and detonated it, which ended up the gunman dying. And, and that brought a lot of controversy in terms of was that an appropriate use of force. So it, it just sort of goes into exploring these issues by, yes, trying to take you into the officer's perspective, but also trying to present sort of a balanced view. As I mentioned, a protester is heavily profiled and a, a trauma surgeon. So really to give you a, this full sweep of um, that night and these issues. That's, is that the, the only time that you're aware of that, that police used a robot this way and essentially killed a suspect by remote control? It is. I mean, there have been some other incidents, notably in Philadelphia, where um, police have used explosives um, as a as a method of deadly force. But this this is the first time that we know of that this has happened in this sort of way with the SWAT team using it um, in a community college to essentially disable a suspect. is um what i'm not sure even how to ask this jamie um sure but the um with all of the conversation that has gone on recently uh, this year in particular because of george floyd brianna taylor and others um mm -hmm. how does how does this book add to that conversation that we're having what I think this book does is um, it really tries to lean into the complexity of these issues. I think a lot of our conversations um, try to really reduce complexity. We, we really paint the players in these situations as sort of one-dimensional characters. You're either, you know, cops are either heroes or villains, protesters are either noble or criminals, you know, and we really end up uh, sort of getting into these this very one-dimensional thinking um, in terms of who's involved here. So what this book really tries to do is to take you into the individual stories of the men and women who who do this work. Um, protesters, cops, really say that you get to know them more as people. You see their lives. You see how race plays out in their um, families on their on their jobs, and, and really the hope is that you get a more intimate, personal understanding of these issues that, that tend to divide us um, instead of really prompt conversation. Um, there's also, um, well, let me, let me uh, back up a little bit. What do you think of the coverage when you see uh, these these media storms in the wake of events like the killing of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor. Um, ha having been someone who's covered a big event, a big national story, um, what do you think of the uh, the media coverage of of those events? Um, are they uh, are they are they getting it basically right, uh, or are they making these events uh, um, small by, by the way they cover them. I, I'm not sure exactly how, to, how sure. to ask this, but what do you think when you see these, uh, these stories? Uh, are the journalists uh, um, 
adding fuel to the fire sometimes, or is it uh, the people who read and watch the stories? You know, I think that's a really interesting question, and I, I think that um, a lot of police officers dislike reporters and, and feel, because they feel as if these stories often are meant to stoke outrage and uh, are very um, narrowly focused. Um, I don't know that I personally believe that. I think that a lot of these situations need to be viewed individually. Like, I think it's hard for anyone to watch the George Floyd video and not feel anger and outrage and sadness and grief. Um, I think, you know, the Breonna Taylor case, there were a lot of problems with how that um, operation was executed, that, that there's plenty to criticize there. Um, I do think, though, that we just need to keep the conversation balanced. We need to look at these incidents and evaluate them on their own, um, their own failings and their, what they what we can sort of learn and do better. I also think it's important to keep in mind that you do have situations like Dallas where we're asking an awful lot of our officers. Um, we're asking them to run toward gunfights and deal with a lot of um, a lot of things in society that we don't see and deal with every day as average citizens. So I think that, um, you know, I just think it's one of those things that we need to be open-minded and inquisitive about. Um, it, you can't find all the answers in is, any one of these cases. Yeah, is is the, the media deciding what to feed us, or are we... Uh, as an audience um, deciding what we're hungry for? Hmm. That is a great question, and I'm not sure of the answer, honestly. Um, I mean, there's clearly a selection process as reporters. We all choose um, what stories to pursue and what interests us. Um, so that there is that uh, unavoidable factor there. But I, um, I, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Um, I, I, I think an awful lot of times, um, especially with uh, editors and publishers, um, they know what sells and they want to sell things. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think they're very often driven. Um, but, but we tend to blame them for making those decisions, not realizing that the decision is based on what the audience is hungry for. Mm-hmm. And I think we blame the media for that, um, you know, rather than assuming some responsibility. We're the ones that slow down the car for a train wreck. Mm -hmm. I think, too, it's hard. We, we all throw around this term, the media, and yeah. um, it, it's hard. You know, I've spent some time watching uh, cable news lately, just, you know, being <laughs> Haven't we all? And <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, and I want to I, I want to continue with that, but I have a break coming up here. Uh, sure. Can we put a comma there and you stick around for a few minutes and we'll talk some more? Absolutely. Great. Sure. My guest is award-winning journalist and author Jamie Thompson. The book is Standoff, Race, Policing, and a Deadly Assault that Gripped a Nation. And we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner. 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue with my conversation with award-winning journalist and author of Standoff, Race, Policing, and a Deadly Assault that Gripped a Nation, Jamie Thompson. Jamie, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you, Tom. Sure, absolutely. Um, Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about... uh, um, the impact that the audience has on what media covers and the impact the media has on what the media covers. Um, what, uh, who do you think is the, uh, the audience for your new book? You know, I, um, I hope, uh, this sounds cheesy to say, but I hope everyone really would be the audience for it. I, I really tried to write it with the idea that people would be able to see themselves in one or more of the characters and also meet a new person or two. Um, so it really tries to, uh, you know, it's not written for one segment. It's not written for the pro-police or the anti-police group. It's really meant to be a journalistic, balanced account of this one uh, very dramatic incident. And but but yet it does shed a different light for people who have gotten involved in what's becoming the defund the police movement. That's interesting. I mean, I think that it it certainly does not leave the cops out of the conversation. I think, um, you know, when I started out as a reporter, I was a police reporter for many years, and I spent a lot of time riding around in cop cars and reading police reports and really immersing in uh, the world of, of police culture. And I think that some of that is getting lost, I think, now, these days, as newsrooms get... Um, cut and we have fewer reporters working uh, in our cities that we don't really get to see the view from the streets as much anymore um, of what it's really like to be in a patrol car and really be out um, handling the kinds of situations we ask our cops to handle day in and day out. So it definitely is attempting to to keep the police at the table for this conversation um, that we need to be continuing to have. But you bring up an interesting point because I've certainly noticed it in, uh, you know, the city of Flint and, and the state of Michigan and, and other places as well. When you have less people doing the reporting, when you try to um, streamline it um, as, as uh, newspapers and, um, and, and even some television uh, news has uh, tried to streamline, not only do you have less people reporting, you know, from up close inside the police department, 
But you have less people in neighborhoods and in schools um, looking at issues of of race and and poverty and and um, what resources are available and not available to different segments of the population. Um, how do we how do we get balance if we don't have boots on the ground? It's a great question. I think it's a really important question, and I wish I knew the answer. Um, but I think, you know, we keep seeing the decimation of our local newspapers, and we're, we're losing a lot of um, important information. We're losing a lot of eyes who are watching over our elected officials and um, who are looking at what our cops are doing in their patrol cars. We're just really starting to um, get further and further away from really accountability and transparency when we lose our particular local newspapers, I think. Well, that was for many decades the the great place to turn to. You know, you would pick up a headline on the radio or on television, and then you went to your newspaper to get the whole story. Mm -hmm. And it's like we're missing the whole story part. Yes, and a lot of radio and TV news has always been built on the backs of the print reporters who are out day in and day out working beats, talking to sources. So the entire industry sort of, I think, uh, suffers when our our daily news reporters start to um, lose their jobs and leave their jobs. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a big problem. And I, w- I wish I had a better answer for that solution. As as a professional journalist, who do you trust? Where do you turn to get good information? Um, I start out every day listening to the New York Times, the Daily podcast, which I am um, obsessed with and addicted to. <laughs> and I read, <laughs> I read a, a lot of newspapers. I read the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, and I read a lot of small-town newspapers. Uh, I'm from the South, so I, I check out a lot of South Carolina, Georgia newspapers. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, I started watching cable news a little bit during quarantine, and I was like, oh, this is why people hate reporters, because it uh, so much of it, what's happening on TV, is really not news at all. It's people talking. Um, so I, I do, I really lean on newspapers uh, in particular still for my own news consumption. Yeah, I, I, I feel that same frustration when I watch uh, television news. Um, it, it, it just, it doesn't seem to be reporting anymore. It seems to be all commentary and, and we're, uh, we're missing out on a lot of important information, I think, because mm-hmm. of this shift. Uh, with newspapers moving from, you know, putting out a paper to being online, especially the ones that that focus on photography and clickbait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you read your local Flint paper? How's that? How's it going there? Well, they're primarily online. They're part of uh, mm-hmm. M Live, um, which is uh, a statewide news service and um various cities are part of that system 
And so, mm-hmm. in a way, what they've done is a, a statewide news service with a reporter or some reporters in cities around mm-hmm. the state. Um, mm. And it's the information is solid, but there's not as much of it as there should be. Gotcha. You know, you get one or two stories out of Flint. You get two or three stories out of Detroit. You get a story Mm -hmm. out of Grand Rapids. And and if you read, you know, all of that, it seems like you've collected a lot of information. But the truth is you're only getting what one or two people can put out in each of those communities. So you miss a Mm -hmm. lot in in terms of um, the, uh, um, the local things. You know, mm-hmm. court cases, uh, uh, you know, local district court cases, uh, local law enforcement initiatives, city council things. You know, you miss mm-hmm. out on a lot of that stuff because it's it, it's just not there. So, you know, what we mm-hmm. get is headline news on television. Interesting. Yeah. And and it's a problem all over the country, and I think it's I, I think it's contributed. I, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, Jamie, but I, I feel like it's contributed to the gridlock. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You mean the, just the gridlock politically? Yeah the 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 big divide that we hear about. Mm-hmm. You know where there's. There's two sides of every issue, and they are completely immovable. Well, of course they're immovable because they don't ever get any information that might cause them to change their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Like I just I find that whole paradigm so boring. You know, um, I really <laughs> think I, <laughs> I've always been interested in the gray and the tension, um, and you know the just the value of really good arguments on both sides which is what i think this you know what attracted me to this book topic because i think that everyone involved in this debate really has compelling and thoughtful things to say and i think if you get too polarized it it just becomes i don't know it's a lot less fun and interesting when um you're committed to only one extreme side well you the um, in the book, you follow a, a SWAT crisis negotiator, um, mm-hmm. and he brings up um, a lot of things that police need to fold into their policing that might make them more effective. He talks about what people seem to be wanting from the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he's sort of the heart and the soul of the book. His name is Larry Gordon. Um, he is one of the few black officers on the SWAT team. He grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood. He's got two older brothers who were in and out of prison. Both um, struggled with crack addiction. And so he really comes to the job with a much more nuanced view of humanity than I think um, some other officers uh come into the the job with. So he, he's really grown up seeing people who he knows very well, who also do, quote, bad things, you know, who's a, a decent guy who may sell some drugs on the side. So he really, no one is sort of defined by any one choice they've made in their lives. So he really approaches people with a lot of empathy, um, sort of this view that 
life is hard and people struggle. And so his, his sort of mandate as a crisis negotiator is really to try to connect with people by using um, sort of what we would normally think of as therapist tools, empathy, active listening. And it's, it's very counter to sort of the typical law enforcement mentality of force and firepower. This crisis negotiating field has really championed a lot of these um, sort of softer skills that we're hearing people say they want more of. So you really get a little bit of a glimpse into that world as you see how Larry Gordon works and um, how, how he sort of approaches this field of crisis negotiating. Well, I've, I've watched as, as uh, the city of Flint and other cities around the, the state and around the country have wrestled trying to reinvigorate community policing and getting, you know, police officers basically like the old beat cop where, you know, mm-hmm. the guy's in the, the same area and he knows all of the people and he understands what's going on in a particular uh, part of the city. And so it isn't, uh, it, it isn't going into situations blind. With your experience um, as a, a police beat reporter and in the research you've done for this book, um, do you have a, a sense of where cops come from? I, I get the impression that there are two. There are people like uh, Larry, the uh, SWAT crisis negotiator, who decide to be police officers because they want to make things better. And mm-hmm. and then there are the ones that were in the military, and this was the kind of work they felt they were trained for. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I think that I would say throughout my career, most of the cops I have met all fall into Category 1. They get into this work because they want to help people. They want to be a hero. They want to be a saver. Um, I, I do think there is another subset that you mentioned of, of just with this law enforcement command background. Um, there are just some assholes who like to be on a power trip. I haven't met, I don't think that's an overwhelming majority, but I think a lot of cops get into this work because they want to be do-gooders. Um, what I have seen happen to a lot of them is they come to the job very naive, from primarily, uh, I'm very much stereotyping here, so I don't want to make too fine a point on this, but there are several characters in the book that uh, come from very white towns, very optimistic, really want to help people, and then they end up spending several years in poor black neighborhoods, and they start to get a view of the world from that very small uh, environment they've been placed in day in and day out. And I think that that becomes sort of problematic um, in terms of, um, you know, what what how cops are trained, how their mindsets are formed. If you have cops that are sent to a crime-filled, uh, poor neighborhood, they begin to have make some generalizations about the world that I don't think always serve them well in a larger um, arena. So I, I think that is one thing to look at, like where we place cops, um, what that experience is like. Well, yeah, because you end up with uh, uh, 
police officers that are, are mandated to uh, uh, enforce law and keep order instead mm-hmm. of, um, you know, being commissioned to solve problems. Yes. And make things better. Definitely. You, you know, I always, I, I always think of Andy Griffith, you know, on that goofy old uh, show in the town of Mayberry. You know, he didn't carry a gun. He just, you know, went talk to people when there was a problem and got them to cool down and, and uh, figured out some way to resolve their differences. And it's, you know, that's, that's such a different version of uh, policing than what we have now mm-hmm. where the police seem to be coming more and more militarized. Yes. Yeah, and I think we're hearing from... Um we're hearing from a lot of people that they want that to shift now. Um, I think one thing the book does get into a bit is um, I think it's interesting to talk about the militarization because I think we've all seen the stories of the small towns that end up with armored tanks and it's, it's sort of puzzling to figure out, you know, why they would need that kind of equipment. But if you get, why is some little, why is some village, you know, some little village of 800 people, you know, got Humvees and tanks and, you know, stuff in the police parking lot. Yeah, I think that that ends up being a bit of a different scenario, though, from a city like Dallas that that really needs a full-time SWAT team, they would argue, um, and has things happen like somebody showing up outside of police headquarters in an armored van shooting into police headquarters. You know, I mean, they, they do... Re- encounter some very serious situations that they need some uh, machinery to help them handle. So I think that, you know, they they would argue that they need some some of these heavy-duty military equipment, and they they would sort of say, look, you got to sort of judge individual SWAT teams on their need based on, you know, what, what they're dealing with and um, how big their cities are. In your reporting and your your research and and putting this book together, um, what did you learn about police and race? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that um, one of the interesting things to me was just how race plays out a bit on the SWAT team. I think that you know these these guys there there have been some women in the team's history but at the, this time it was all men um they formed these really intense bonds you know they're together all the time well they're a team all kind they're a team and they're doing some pretty dangerous work and they're seeing each other tired and uh angry and you know they they really get to know each other probably better than brothers um and I think even with those close bonds, race is still a pretty difficult thing for them to talk about. They joke about it um, and in pretty raunchy ways sometimes, but they still, even with all the time they spend and how well they know each other, they look at each other when they're of different races kind of wondering, um, what do they really think of me? And... Um, what do they really think of Barack Obama? And what, I mean, they, they have all sorts of questions that they don't even really talk about, which I just think is, is interesting. It shows you how 
difficult these conversations are to have no matter how close you are to some friends and colleagues. It's very difficult to talk about race. And and what are some of the points in the book that you think will surprise people? Hmm. So I think that, I don't know why this is the first thing that's coming to my mind, but the details about how the team came up with the plan to arm a robot with C4, I think is surprising and interesting. Um, they're very much operating kind of on the fly. Um, and you get to know some of the SWAT officers. One of them is is kind of an odd guy with the, they call him Rain Man because he has a very um, uncanny ability with numbers. And he's he's tasked with some of the um, important bomb making duties. And so I, I think just hearing how that all came together is, is kind of a surprising and interesting um, inside look at, at this one complicated police operation. Yeah, I remember talking to a police officer once, and they were a group of them were supposed to raid a house, but they knew that there were lots and lots of guns in this house. Um, mm. That that the guy they were going after, he was one of these guys that was completely paranoid. He had guns duct taped under the kitchen table, and you know, <laughs> under the counter in the bathroom, and you know, so wherever this guy was, he was going to get a gun, and there was a good chance mm. that one of these guys was going to get shot. So he um, actually uh, staged a car accident in front of the house. Wow! Um, with a young girl you know screaming for help and the guy comes running out of the house and they just bracket him and walk him out to the, <laughs> the police wow car. and he said wow. you know they they just they came up with it as a way to try and minimize gunplay mm -hmm. and and it sounds kind of like that's what what these guys were doing on the SWAT team when they said you know um we got to take this guy out but you know, why Why risk one of us? Yeah, there, there's a moment where um, they basically tell their commanders, you know, sending another man down that hallway of sending him to his death. There's just really no way they can conceive of that they can get to this gunman um, without really exposing uh, more officers. Um, and they've already run past you know, five officers who have been brutally gunned down in the street. So they know this plan is going to be controversial, but it's really the only thing they can think of to take, that will sort of take him out and keep them safe. Um, so, yeah. Jamie, I have another break coming up here in about a minute. Can you stick around and, and we'll talk a little bit more? You know, I actually have two kids. I have. Um, oh, boy. I'm neglecting for homeschooling duties, but um, so I don't know how much longer I'll be able to keep it going. <laughs> well, it, maybe if we could just uh, come back and and, uh, and and wrap it up a little bit. Okay, that sounds great. Okay, my guest is uh, Jamie Thompson. She is the author of a new book called Standoff, Race, Policing, 
and a deadly assault that gripped a nation. If you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. We'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. We want to say hello. We want to see you smile. We'd like to sing some good old Christmas songs. With songs of Otto Santa and his reindeer sleigh. And gee, I just can't wait until it's Christmas Day. We're gonna set you wise, we love to harmonize. And if we had our way, we'd never stop. We'll say hello, we'll see you smile, and we'll sing some good old Christmas songs. We'll say hello. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom Bodette from Manger 6. We know you've been traveling a lot this holiday season, and you've probably been told there's no room at the inn. 
Well, that's just not the case here at Manger 6. Why, for just 29 drachma, we'll put you up in a warm, comfortable stable with plenty of fresh milk for the newborn. There's even individual stalls for your mules, camels, or whatever you happen to be driving across the desert. And in case unexpected visitors decide to drop in on you, shepherds, wise men, holy ghosts, it's not a problem at Manger 6. There's plenty of frankincense and myrrh to go around. This is Tom Bodette from Manger 6 reminding you, there's always room at this inn. We'll even leave a star out for you. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, just got a, a just a couple of minutes left with um, award-winning journalist Jamie Thompson, who's written a book called "Standoff: Race, Policing, and a Deadly Assault That Gripped a Nation." Uh, Jamie, thanks for sticking around. I know you got to go, but sure. um, what is uh, is this your first book? It is my first book. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, do you have the bug now? Are there going to be more books from Jamie Thompson? There might be. We will have to see. I have to get these kids back in school, and we have to get, you know, so I can get back to work. <laughs> um, um, and and speaking of that, um, how long did you work on the book? It's, so I worked on the book, I would say, gosh, you know, I started reporting on the event as it happened and just never really stopped. Um, I, I want to say I probably spent a full year and a half putting the book together. I had done a lot of reporting before that, though. So, um, so yeah, it was it was a, a pretty intense process um, that, that I did enjoy for the most part. Um, I think there's a higher level of stress just in terms of, you know, you're juggling a lot more material and you're trying to keep the narrative moving forward while... Um, you know, there's, there's, it's just a bigger monster to wrestle with than <laughs> Did you expect stories, that you were yeah. going to be calling mostly from your reporting and then got into it and discovered, wow, there are a whole bunch more questions I've got to get answers to? I did. There were just <laughs> always more and more questions that kept me going. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just, it, it was just I never lost interest in it. I'm still very interested in it. Have have you kept up your writing for uh, other publications? I have been trying. I, I actually went to Louisville for Politico and um, spent several days with the protesters there uh, writing about the Brianna Taylor case. So I, I've been doing some work. Uh, my husband is a Washington Post reporter, so he's been pretty busy. So I have been mostly doing cooking and children duty. Uh -huh. <laughs> But, um, but, yeah, I'm trying to get a little writing in when I can. Um, well, I, 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 know you, I know you've got to run, um, but um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But do you have a website where people can uh, maybe look, uh, look at and track down some of your other work? 
actually do not have a website. I probably should have a website. But um, I, I think the best thing is to you can Google my name, Jamie Thompson, and Standoff is available anywhere. Um, would love for people to read it and reach out to me and let me know what they think. Um, and yeah, that's that's probably the best way. I'll, I'll try to get a website going at some point here. <laughs> well, Jamie, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Uh, Absolutely. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was um, award-winning journalist Jamie Thompson. She's written a book called Standoff Race Policing and a Deadly Assault that Gripped a Nation. Um, she covered the Dallas police shooting for the uh, Washington Post and um, the Dallas Morning News. She won the uh, Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Writing. She has been a contributing editor for D Magazine and a, an associate professor of journalism at the University of Dallas. Um, her work also has appeared in Texas Monthly and the Tampa Bay Times, as well as uh, Politico. So um, we're gonna we're gonna move on. We've got. Uh, Interesting conversation coming up in the next hour about a survey that shows a lot of Americans are uh, concerned about the environment, and we're going to talk with Jeremy Walters about the implications of that when we return. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children growing hungry, teens are turning to crime And politicians know it's true but they ain't got no time in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on and on. There may be people who truly do care, they may be mighty, but still they lack the key. I pray that someday these people will finally declare, not even heroes can do it all. To know the one you love is cheating That's the life in America Someone stop the train You can't go on and on Ooh, and where's the Constitution When you need it to refer The things that are unlawful Have the papers all been burned Yeah, that's the life in America Should I still remain or just go on and on and on
Tom Sumner Program.com Staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride I'll see you on the other side It's not the same without you here this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side on the other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side Tom Sumner Program.com We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.